growing as disciples. And so one of the ways we want to continue to pursue growth is to say, God, how would you have us serve? How would you have us make disciples and partner together with other people? So I'd ask for your prayers as, um, as we meet this week that you'd be praying for us that God make clear how Adam and Sarah might make disciples and where that might be, but also pray for the Whittle family that they would be strengthened as they're making disciples in Sweden, a very dark place. Um, as you know, I've I helped plant a church in Vancouver, British Columbia, where it's similar demographics, somewhere between 1% and 2%. And so I can understand being in a, a, a gospel-darkened place, a place that does, does not experience the light of the gospel yet. And when the light of the gospel breaks forth and opens up people's eyes, it is just a wonderful, joyful experience. And so looking forward to seeing how it might be a part of that. And then um, something else that just came up this past weekend um, there are different cultures everywhere proclaiming the gospel, and sometimes there's different styles and ways of doing things, and sometimes there's more planning, and sometimes there's less planning. And um, our, our brothers in the Brazil Soccer Academy have just let us know of a need that's coming up in a week or so. The, the head of the Brazil Soccer Academy, they, they were here with us a few months back, but the head of the Brazil Soccer Academy is looking for a place to stay. They told him he needs to learn better English, and so he needs to be in, in America for a month. And he is going to be here for a month as looking for a host home. So if God would put that onto your heart, that is a real practical way of partnering together in the gospel and, and helping him go back and helping him proclaim the gospel to all the different places they go as well. So if you are interested in that, let me know. Let Aaron know. Uh, Wagner and Debbie Noguera uh, are not here this morning. They're on spring break, but um, he's the one kind of hoping to organize that, and the need is really rapid. So um, if you can keep them for a month, that's great. Uh, I think there's at least one couple that's willing to take them for a week. We need them for about three more weeks. So let us know that. That'd be great. Um, yes. Wonderful. One more week. Okay, great. Yes, he's coming next week. Okay, the week of the 24th, as Roger was saying, we would love to have somebody host them for that week. Um, uh, he, he's a great brother, doesn't speak a lot of English. If you could help him with that too, that would be excellent, but he loves Jesus. Um, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're reading verses 12 through 21, and as we prepare to read verses 12 to 21, I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to really um, do your best to follow the train of thought. This is, this, is, this is perhaps one of the more challenging passages in Romans to follow Paul's train of thought, to figure out, Paul, what are you trying to say? Where are you going? What are you doing here, Paul? Um, it, it's not the most straightforward passage, and so some passages in Scripture, as the Apostle Peter wrote, he said that, that some of what Paul writes is difficult to understand. This is one of those passages that it takes a little bit of work. And so I'm going to ask you this morning to pay extra attention to God's holy inspired word. And as we've been doing the last few weeks, I'm going to actually ask you to stand as well. We're going to stand as an act of worship. Um, we don't want to always do this. This is not going to be something that we want to be legalistic about. But um, one of the things we want to do as a church is acknowledge that God's word is unique and that we want to worship him for his word. So if you're able to stand, stand. If you're not able to stand, go ahead and sit down. But um, I want to read God's word and worship him as we hear it. This is God's holy inspired word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us a diversity of of your word as well, Lord. But Lord, thank you for passages like this that we can mine for the gold that they contain. God, I pray that you would help us and our feeble minds understand you and your word. God, I pray that you would make me filled with your spirit, Lord, I pray. That you would fill each and every one of us with your Holy Spirit. Open up our minds, Lord. Open up our hearts, Lord. May we see you. May we behold you. May we understand you, God. And would you speak to each and every one of us here through your word and by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as many of you know, today is what we call Palm Sunday. Um, This isn't a typical Palm Sunday message, but it does apply to Palm Sunday. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem and he knew he'd be betrayed. He knew he would be imprisoned and die. Jesus was the son of God, the rightful king of all. He was sent into the world, miraculously placed inside of Mary by the Holy Spirit through the virgin birth and His life began with a miracle and he lived this completely perfect life in the sight of all people. He was tempted, but he never sinned. I don't know if you can imagine that. He patiently subjected himself to his family. He subjected himself to social obligations, all the expectations of humanity, until he was about 30 years old. And then he submitted himself and he was baptized, showing that that he, as a man, needed the Holy Spirit to empower him As a man, Jesus lived an incredible life. He ministered mightily in the power of the Holy Spirit like no one ever before him had ever done in all of history. Yet he didn't, as you think about it, he was riding into Jerusalem. He still didn't meet the expectations of the sinful people that he was riding into the city of. 
He was perfect in every way. He, he ministered miraculously. He was the perfect prophet. He, he demonstrated that he knew all the thoughts of mankind. He showed that he's the creator. He's able to make something out of nothing that only God can do. He, he made bread where there wasn't. He made, he made fish. He fed 5,000 on separate, two separate occasions. He, he turned water into wine. He demonstrated he has the power of the creator. He demonstrated that he is over all the physical world. He walked on water. He calmed nature by speaking to it. He demonstrated his power over the spiritual world countless times, casting out demons, delivering those who were oppressed by the devil, and he demonstrated that he's not limited, he's not bound in any way by humanity, and then he showed that he's also over the effects of the fall and over sin in our physical bodies. He healed countless people. He says he healed all who came to him. He made the the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. He made the deaf to hear. He brought the dead to life. That's who this Jesus was who rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and yet he wasn't enough for them. He wasn't enough for them. They, he, he didn't meet their expectations. He didn't give them what they thought they needed. He taught with power and authority. He pierced the soul. He preached of seeking the heavenly kingdom. But they still wanted an earthly king. They wanted to get something from Jesus. They wanted Jesus to do something for them that they thought was better. They wanted something for themselves that they thought was what they really needed. So on that first Palm Sunday, they threw down these palm branches and they, they threw down their cloaks and they, they made a way for Jesus because they were wanting him to do things for him, for them. They were wanting him to be their kind of king, their kind of Messiah. They wanted him to be an earthly king, an earthly ruler. But they were fickle and Jesus didn't deliver what they wanted. And five days later, they turned on him. And we're going to celebrate that, commemorate that really on Good Friday. The crowds abandoned him. They sought to kill him. They didn't get what they had hoped for from him. And I think that today, people are not much different, are we? You know, we, we see the mighty power of Jesus. We see his miraculous works. We, we see who, who he really was. And, and then we're convicted and he speaks to our hearts. And we go, meh. We want more. Jesus, we want an earthly king. We want the things we want. We want our way. And we're far more like the crowds most days. We want what we want. We demand that Jesus fits our mold. Our image. Instead of seeing how much greater he is than anything we could imagine. We, we see his grace and we're like, yeah, Jesus, that's good. But your grace, it's, I want something else. I want a job. I want finances. I want a relationship, I want success, I want peace, I want harmony in life, I want an easy life, I want all these things. But really, all those things, the crowds didn't know that as they were abandoning Jesus and crucifying him, they were actually giving up their only hope. Our problem is much like those crowds. And when we align ourselves with Adam, it leads to death. When we align ourselves with the earthly kingdom, the things of this world that Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage, he talks about how, how in Adam is death. 
If we remain in Adam in the earthly way of thinking, that worldly way of thinking, that way leads only to death. And we can't imagine that Jesus is far superior and we can't imagine that his grace abounds all the more. And so the Apostle Paul, he is laying out here in this passage something we truly need to see and understand if we're to be saved and follow the Messiah. It's, it's that to be in solidarity with Adam to follow after the things of, of Adam as the ruler of humanity, it leads to death, condemnation, judgment. But to be in union with Christ is, is superior because Christ is far superior to Adam, is what the Apostle Paul is saying, and he brings us a superabundant grace. Now it's a little hard to follow Paul's line of thinking, but if we stay with it, it will yield. Sometimes understanding something is deep, it's very rewarding. It's like digging in down deep in a mind and finding a diamond. It's, it's worthy and beautiful to behold. And, and I think the scripture functions like that for us as well. Um, so as we dig down deep, it helps simplify things. There's, there's kind of three points that I would like to bring out of this passage to help us understand Paul's line of thinking and help us understand the superiority of Christ and the greatness of God's grace even more. And the first thing we need to understand is that the solidarity with Adam, it leads to being ruled by death. Solidarity with Adam leads to being ruled by death, and the superiority of Christ leads to reigning in life. And the third thing we'll see is that the superabounding grace of Jesus Christ is what we can have. That's what we can have. And it's far greater than any earthly thing we could want or any earthly king we think we need. But the challenge arises for us in, in verse 12. Look down your Bibles, if you will. Paul begins the sentence and he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. There's a little dash in, in the ESV, at least. I don't know if there's a dash in your Bibles. Because Paul kind of leaves off the logical flow of thought. You normally would expect him to say, therefore, just as, so also. Right? He's making a comparison and a contrast. So you'd expect him to say, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, so also. But he doesn't finish that. He doesn't finish that flow of thought. Because he realized that it's important for us to understand that Sin came into the world, and because sin came into the world, we, we, there's a solidarity for every human that's followed after Adam. So Paul kind of puts, puts his argument on Paul's, and it makes it kind of hard to follow. It's, it's one of the harder passages in Romans to follow, and you're like, Paul, what are you doing? But if you realize what he's doing, what he's, what he's doing is he's saying, we have sin that came into the world, and through one man, and death through sin, and, and death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he realizes, wait a minute, before I show the contrast of that, you need to understand what that means. You need to understand what that means to be in solidarity with Adam, that, that all, of, all of sin comes through one man, that death comes through that one man's sin to all. And so all have sinned. And so in verses 12 to 14, what we see there is, is Paul really showing that all of humanity has a solidarity with Adam, and that this solidarity with Adam, it leads to death. And by the way, for those who don't know, Adam means mankind, and so the argument is even more poignant 
if you understand that, that that solidarity with mankind, with Adam as the representative head of mankind, that solidarity being born as a human, it leads to death for each and every one of us. Now you might think for a minute, Paul, what are you trying to say here? He says, death came through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. And there's two ways of looking at that. Death spread to all men because all sin. Does that mean that we all die because all of us sin? Well, here he's actually saying that the root cause, he says that as sin came to the world through one man, the root cause of all of death is that one man, Adam. And in Adam's sin, as Adam originally sinned, sin entered into the world. Something that had not happened before, sin entered into the world. And then the consequence of sin was both physical and spiritual death and that was spiritual and physical death for all of Adam's descendants immediately immediately the effects of Adam's one sin his as our representative as the head of all mankind the father of us all universally is what the apostle Paul here is saying is that we all have a solidarity in him by default by nature we are all in Adam and by nature what he's saying here and stick with the argument here is that through this one man, death came and death spread to all men because all sinned. What he means is that in, in an essence, in a sense, every one of us was found sinful in Adam as our father because once Adam sinned, all of us were corrupted by sin and in some sense, we are all in Adam. He had not yet had children, but we're all descended from him. We all share his, his common DNA. Adam's sin affects and has affected every person in every age, in every place who's ever been born after Adam. He is our universal father. By default, we're in him and we all sin. Now, not only that, are we all counted as sinful? Are we all, do we all die, both physically, eventually, and spiritually? But we actually all sin as well, adding, adding our own penalty, So we need a universal savior because all of us were corrupted in our very nature, is what he's saying. All of us have a solidarity with Adam. We're corrupted in our very nature. We all inherit Adam's corruption. And in one sense, we're in Adam. So we need a universal savior. Now, why Paul is saying this, why he's making this argument is because we need to see that, although he's earlier said that that all of us are punished because of our own sins, he's saying that our condition was more hopeless, that we were actually imputed the sins with the sins of Adam and that death was credited to us in Adam before we'd ever done anything at all. And it's important to see is that we were counted as dead in sin by one man in Adam. And he's going to make the argument that in the same way, just as we didn't even have to earn the condemnation that we got, although we have earned that, he says all have sinned. In the same way, later on he's going to show, and we'll get to that, how That's our grounds for hope in Christ because we do nothing to earn the righteousness that comes through one man that's credited to us. So you you track in there, I know it's a little difficult. Look down at verse 13, he says, Indeed, he acknowledges the argument here that some people might have. He says, For indeed in the world, before the law was given, but for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. What he's not saying is, he's not saying that people didn't sin between the time of Adam and Moses. 
But they didn't, they didn't count it. They didn't understand it. They didn't credit it. It wasn't fully credited as sin in the ledger in the same way because they didn't know it was sin. What they did know is that they had violated God's rule and God's authority. And so because of that, all died, he said, between Adam and Moses. So sin was still in the world, but it wasn't counted the same. So whether it's before the law or after the law, we are all in solidarity with Adam and under sin. And he explains that death still reigned, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam had a specific commandment he disobeyed. And everybody between Adam and Moses didn't have a a specific commandment, per se, that they were disobeying. That's what he's saying. But yet, we all sinned, and we all experienced the punishment for sin, death. And Adam, though, he said it was a type of the one who was to come. And that's important for us to see. He was a type of the one who was to come. Even before the law, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And Adam is a type of Christ. And it's important for us to see fundamentally because of Adam's sin, we're condemned to death. Not because of individual sins we commit alone. We would have been condemned to death no matter what. That's the the doctrine of what theologians might call original or indwelling sin. And if we're judged on the basis of our sins alone, we would still stand condemned. So none of us have any excuse. But in a similar way, it's not because of the right actions that we do. Here's here's where the hope is in understanding this, this doctrine of original sin. Because in original sin, we were credited as sinful and condemned. Our hope, though, is that in Christ, for those who are in Adam, you are condemned to death. And Paul is saying here that for those who are in Christ... You are credited or counted as righteous. So it's because we're in Christ by faith with him as the new head of our humanity that it's his righteousness is imputed to us. The superiority of Christ, it leads to reigning in life. The superiority of Christ leads to reigning in life. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He says that just as sin came in the world through death, so, so Christ brings life And then he's going to get to the other argument that in verse 18, that as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life. And we'll get to that as our third point. When we think of something being superior, it's a little difficult for us to wrap our heads around. You see, the people who saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem, they thought of nothing greater than the idea of the Messiah throwing off Roman oppression, right? They could dream of nothing greater than getting rid of of these pesky Romans who had put them under their feet. These Romans who were ruling over them, it wasn't right. They could think of nothing better than the Messiah coming to take over, to dominate, to establish peace again, to rule, to reign, to give them prosperity on the earth. They couldn't think of anything better because they couldn't fathom how far superior Christ's reign really is. I had a time kind of wrapping my head around that idea of thinking of something far superior for us. We are so accustomed to, to hearing of God's grace and hearing of Jesus Christ that it's hard for us to wrap our heads around how truly superior Christ is. The only thing I could think of this morning was, you know, an anthill, and you got a bunch of ants in this little teeny anthill, and they're in um, a glass aquarium, and they're, they're constrained, and there's a lid on it. And, and in this anthill, all the ants in there can imagine about greatness is what it would be like to be the queen of the ants. 
They can't fathom a world outside of their little aquarium. And, and for them, the greatest thing they could ever imagine is, is having the life of luxury of other ants feeding you and tending to your every need. You know, that's sometimes what we do as well. We, we can't imagine how God could be better than getting what we think we need, right? What do you think you need this morning? What do you think you need? Is that a relationship with somebody? You think you need peace with somebody? You think you need finances? You think you need health? You think you, what, what do you think you need? Now, it's not that in some sense we don't have needs as humans. It's not, not ignoring that, but what do we think we need more than we are aware of our need for Christ? See, Christ is far superior than this little kingdom in this little aquarium that we create. It's like comparing that to the vast cosmos. He's far superior the, the stretch of the cosmos. I remember when I first learned um, when I was in high school sometimes just that, that we've yet to find the, the far reaches of the galaxy. We've yet to explore just how far all of the galaxies go. We don't even know how many galaxies there are. The universe is so vast, it's mind-blowing. And what the Apostle Paul here is saying is that he's saying Christ is far superior to Adam in the same sense that that kingdom of the ants is far inferior to the cosmos. He says, he makes a comparison, he makes a contrast here in, in verse 15. He says, he says something negative. He says, the free gift is not like the trespass. So Adam is like Christ in, in verses 12 to 14 in the sense that Adam was the representative head of humanity. Christ comes as a, the representative head of a new humanity. And he says, but this free gift is not like Adam's sin. And he goes to explain that. He says, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What he's saying is that what Adam did was one sin, and that resulted in the death of all humanity. In contrast, the work of Jesus Christ was a gift that he freely and graciously offered and the trespass was a result of Adam trying to be God. And in contrast, Jesus, the Son of God, gives his life as a result of God's self-giving grace. I know it's hard to wrap your head around what Paul's saying here. There's similarities, but the gift of Christ's righteousness is far superior to Adam's sin. You're like, well, well how do you mean that? Yeah, it was, it was through one sin that all died, is what he's saying. The many died. And it was through one man, Jesus Christ, that the many, all who believe in him, are made righteous and given grace. But that, that one gift of righteousness, it doesn't just apply to one sin. That's what he's saying here. He's that, is that this gift is not like the trespass. There was one trespass that led to all death. But Jesus' one act, one gift, one life of righteousness as the free gift that he gave, his, his birth, his life, his death, it resulted in the many who committed many sins being made righteous. Do you see that? So he's saying there's, the free gift is far greater than the one trespass. Because the free gift doesn't just cover one trespass. For everybody who's here, it's not just one and done. You don't just get one chance, like Adam. He's saying Christ's gift is far greater. Adam had one chance. He blew it, 
and death came to all. He's saying Christ's gift is actually sufficient to cover every single trespass, every single sin you have ever and will ever commit. So his gift is greater. But not only that, it's not just for one man that Christ's grace is able to cover, that he's able to forgive. His gift is not just for one person and all their many sins. It's for all who believe. He says much more. Much more. Look down your Bibles. Much more does the grace of God abound to us through Jesus. And his grace is much more certain. Here's why. You see, Adam's sin, or his ability to not sin, relied on on his ability. He trusted in his own ability, and, and he failed. He sinned. Our gift that we receive does not rely on our ability. It's a far greater gift. It's a far greater gift. It doesn't rely on our ability. It doesn't rely on us continuing to be righteous. If you and I are to continue in sin, although may it never be, if we continue to sin though, his gift never runs dry. So you understand why Paul is making this comparison and contrast and says that his free gift is far greater. It is much more. The righteousness that we receive is much more, and it's much more for a few reasons. It's much more because his righteousness, his gift, it never ends. It's not one and done. If you're a Christian here and you're struggling with a sense of condemnation and failure, you're aware that you continue to fail even after you have said um, that you believe in Jesus Christ. You've, you've made that profession of faith. you placed your faith in him, and yet you continue to sin. You need to see that Jesus' gift is far superior because it doesn't rely on our ability to not sin. It relies on the righteousness of Christ. And why is that gift far greater? It's because Jesus' righteousness is far greater than Adam's righteousness before Adam sinned. Jesus perfectly obeyed in every single way. I can't imagine growing up in a home and perfectly loving my siblings. I can't imagine perfectly loving my parents and perfectly submitting. Perfectly doing all the Father's will. Perfectly obeying in every single way. He says the free gift that we received, it's not like the sin that leads to death. Because the free gift, it's, it's unsurpassed. It's, it's righteousness in every single way. Not just sin in one way. His grace is far greater. Look down at verse 17. He says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man... Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because of Adam's first sin, death reigned in Adam and all his descendants, is what he's saying. Death reigned in the sense of a supreme monarch reigning. I I, I know that Phil is from the United Kingdom, and he understands to some degree what a monarch means, although it's really more of a figurehead there. Um, The queen doesn't really reign supreme. You have parliament. When we lived in Canada, we were, it was very confusing. We were, it was an independent country, and yet the queen was our monarch. We didn't really understand monarchy at all. I don't think in the U.S. we understand what it means to reign supreme, to rule supreme. But when Paul says that sin reigns supreme, what he means is that 
not only did sin reign as a figurehead, it had absolute rule and authority. Through Adam, each and every one of us were under the reign, the rule, the authority of sin. We could do nothing but sin. We had no choice because we were under its iron fist. But then it says, all who believe in him, those who receive the abundance of God's grace, it says all those who receive his free gift of righteousness that he offers, he says he offers reign in life. Reign in life. Look down to verse 17, the very end of verse 17. Here's what's offered. Here's why Jesus is superior. The free gift of righteousness, we receive a reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So it begs the question of whether or not you've really received his grace. What, what rule are you living under? Are you living under the rule and reign of Adam? Are you still associating yourself with what you think is best? Are you still giving in to the authority of Adam? Or are you saying, no, Jesus, I, I want you to reign and rule over me because you are superior. If so, death won't have the final word because you might be having a good life right now, but, but your good life, it, it's like that little aquarium that, that the ants have. You think it's the best thing ever, and you have no idea. You have no idea what, what God holds out to you in his free gift of life, his free gift of righteousness. Not only will you not die eternally if you receive God's grace, it says you'll reign in eternal life. I can't even imagine that, and we're going to get that in just a moment. You'll reign in eternal life, ruling, if you will, as kings and queens under the ultimate sovereign of God. Jesus' gift, being in Christ, is far superior. That's what Paul's saying. Now look down at verses 18 to 21. He, he's here referencing the superabounding grace of God. The superabounding grace of Jesus Christ, it's what we can have. Look down at verse 20, where it's really in verses 18 to 20, it talks about God's grace. But in, in verse 20, he says, grace abounded all the more. So that, that phrase, grace abounded all the more, it, it really could be tra- translated, which you know, is not necessarily relatable in English all the time, but grace superabounded. Where sin came, grace superabounded. You know, it's a, it's a kind of a, a pale imitation of, of the superabounding of something, but I was reading this past week that the, the kingdom of Dubai, they're a small kingdom on, in the Gulf of um, Arabia and and on the Arabian Peninsula, and the kingdom of Dubai that's very wealthy, and they kind of do everything with a little bit of overkill, you know? And I read about how their police force actually has the fa- one of the fastest cars in the world, the Bugatti Veyron, is in this police force of this, of this place that you couldn't even get up to top speed before you hit the end of the country, really. I mean, it's just, this car goes 253 miles an hour. It, it superabounds in power what's needed as a police force. And really, it's, it's way overkill. It's far more than you would ever need or should ever use as a police officer. You know, God forbid that they would ever go 253 miles an hour through the streets of Dubai. You couldn't stop. You couldn't arrest anybody. It would just lead to death. But the grace of Jesus Christ is, is far more than we could ever need. His grace superabounds, And he offers us this superabounding grace. 
That's why the Apostle Paul is giving this argument here. He's saying that sin entered the world, death came into the world, but we don't have to receive that. If we are in Christ, we can have life in his righteousness, and then we can receive his superabounding grace. All of human race was condemned to Adam's sin. Look in, in verse 18. It picks up the line of thought that Paul began back in verse 12 with the just as, now so. And so he picks up the just as again. Therefore, as, referring back to verse 12, one trespass led to condemnation. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Paul's been summing up his argument here in all of Romans and he's saying that it doesn't rely on you. Just like your condemnation, the root of all your condemnation and death, it actually didn't rely on you. You didn't even need to add your sin to be condemned to die. Now we have all added our sin, is what Paul's been telling us, so we're all without excuse. But in our very first father, we were condemned, and his condemnation was imputed to us. And now here he's saying, so this one act of righteousness in the same way is imputed through Christ as he by faith becomes our head as he becomes our king our leader our ruler all human beings he says condemnation led for all men he says so act of righteousness leads justification in life for all men he's not he's not teaching universalism here but what he means is that that all human beings all men all women all murderers all terrorists all liars all legalists all Covetors, all deceivers, all equally are in need of and can receive justification in life. Do you feel like you're too far gone? You ever feel like you're just too fickle, you're too unreliable, you're too faulty? All, just like we all deserve death, all can receive. All who receive his free gift, all can receive complete justification and eternal life. Being in Christ is the basis for our righteousness and justification and life and nothing else. That's what Paul's saying. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And to speak of the act of righteousness, he talks about one act of righteousness. It's really like referring to an act of a grand play. It's not one thing, but it's in the entirety of the act of Jesus' life of righteousness from his birth to death on the cross. That's Jesus' act of righteousness, inclusive. But his acts no make believe. It's the act of he lived his entire life fully pleasing to God. You ever, you ever dream of being fully pleasing to God? And I sure do. You know, I, I think, oh God, can I just not sin anymore? <laughs> can I not fail anymore? Can I not just be mean? I don't want to be mean to my, my wife, my kids anymore. I, God, I want to I wanna worship you. I want to I be righteous. God, I want to be that way forever. I don't, I'm, I don't want this life to be like it is. I don't want to be like I am in this life. If you've ever felt that way, here's what Paul is saying. He says this one act, this all of the life of Jesus, it leads to your complete justification for all. That in every way, God, if you are in Christ, you have been legally declared as just to come before God 
pure, holy, completely sinless, as if you have never sinned. So the way you look at yourself if you are in Christ is not the way that God looks at you if you're in Christ. You've got to be preaching that to yourself every day. And then he says, and life for all men. Not, not the feeble kind of life that we hope for. Not this small, petty, little life that we can't imagine anything better. But he, he holds out a life eternal. His righteous exchange, he took death in our place so that we might have his life. What kind of life did Jesus have prior to becoming God incarnate? He had eternal, eternal life. And see, Jesus was fully God, fully man. And so as he, as he made this great exchange, what he offers to us, he doesn't just offer us life in this world. He says, I'm offering you all the life that I have. If you're in Christ, he gives you life more abundantly. I can't imagine the idea of having life with no sin forever. I can't imagine life with joy complete Life with peace that never fails. Life that's never empty or lonely. I can't imagine life with no challenges, no problems, no, no sin. And yet he says that this act of righteousness, it leads to that life. That doesn't mean we have it now. We still experience the effects of Adam's sin, but we can experience the beginning of that life now. Look in verse 19. It says, By the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, many be made righteous. In Adam, all of mankind were made sinners. The righteousness he's talking about is not just a failure to sin, it's complete obedience to God. God sees you as completely obedient if you are in Jesus Christ. That's really good news. That's really good news. That is superabounding grace. You see, his grace is far greater than all the multitude of all the sins of all of mankind. His grace never runs out. It never runs dry. It's all sufficient because he is an eternal God who never runs out of grace. It's who he is. And then through this complete obedience of Jesus, says all who received his gift are made righteous. And then he gives this free gift of, of forgiveness as we trust in Christ alone. Now look in verse 20. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. What Paul's doing, he's talking to a church full of Jews and Gentiles. And they're saying, well then Paul, what was the whole point of the law? He says, well the law was actually meant to show us how much more we need Christ. Because in Adam, although we deserve death, we didn't fully understand and comprehend our need for salvation but the law came to show us just how bad we could be and to reveal all the ways in which we cannot please God so in a sense says the law came to increase the trespass he says but where sin increased and the reason the law came for a temporary time it came from Moses to Jesus was so that we could see our great need for Jesus so that we could see his grace is far greater Do you see God's grace is far greater this morning than your sin? Do you see your great need and the fact that his grace covers each and every one of our needs for grace? 
sin reigned in death. It says through Christ, instead of, what we get, instead of punishment, it's this free gift of being accepted by God, although we're guilty of many sins. New Living Translation, I like the way they put it in verse 20 and 21. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful kindness became more abundant. Can you imagine his wonderful kindness? His grace would be so great that he would put up not with just one sin that deserves death, but he would put up with so many of the sins of mankind just so that he could show his grace. It says, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, so now God's wonderful kindness rules instead, giving us right standing with God, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the scripture doesn't end with sin reigning in death. It says that grace reigns through righteousness to bring eternal life. And I've got a quote from a guy named John Stott, a dear brother who's, who's passed on. He says, nothing could sum up better the blessing of being in Christ than the expression, the reign of grace. For grace forgives sins through the cross and bestows on the sinner both righteousness and eternal life. I like what he says next. He says, grace satisfies the thirsty soul and fills the hungry with good things. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you hungry? You might not be able to imagine anything greater. God holds out his super abounding grace if you're in Christ Jesus because to be in Christ Jesus is far superior than to be in Adam. Stott continues on. He says, Grace sanctifies sinners, shaping them into the image of Christ. Grace perseveres even with the, the one who shrinks back, determining to complete what it has begun. And one day, grace will destroy death and consummate the kingdom. Don't you look forward to that? that one day we will reign in life. And he says, So when we are convinced that grace reigns, we will remember that God's throne is a throne of grace. And will come to it boldly to receive mercy and find grace for every need. And all this is through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is through his death and resurrection. And, and as we get ready to, to close, there's just three implications I want you to understand here. You're either, well, you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. If you're in Christ, you receive his superabundant grace and his eternal life. And if you receive his grace, there's three implications of his grace. And that's the first is that God's grace is an effective remedy for self-righteousness and legalism. It's an effective remedy for self-righteousness and legalism. You know, we're all tempted to trust and rely on ourselves, our own ability to fully satisfy the law. And every turn we're tempted to legalism. But we have to constantly remind ourselves both the punishment we deserved and the ground on which we stand to avoid legalism. And you might not think that applies to you, but let me, let me encourage you to think about that. Let's start here with just the church even. You know, you ever think that you're a more mature Christian because, you, you know, you, you have better doctrine or you go to a better church? You ever proud about the fact that you have, you're more passionate or more mature or you have whatever? God's grace is far greater than our self-righteousness or legalism. You know, students, you can be tempted because you don't cheat at school to think, hey, I'm better than the other students or because I'm not a hypocrite and I don't party all the time. Or Parents, you know, when your, your kids are, are more well-behaved, do you credit it to, to your thoughts to your own sound parenting skills or do you credit it to God's grace? His grace abounds for 
all those areas of weakness and all those areas of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. You know, some guys, they might work harder than others and so they look down on those men. That's because of the grace of God abounding in our life that we're able to do work and it's his continual grace that's at work in us that, that we can reign in life, that his, his grace can begin to reign in our lives. It's also a precious remedy for, for condemnation. Maybe, maybe you're here and you feel like you can't stop sinning. His grace abounds for you. It's far greater than your ability. You see, our condemnation, Paul was saying this, he relied only on one man, one sin, we were condemned, Adam. And so our hope that we're not condemned is one man, if we're in him, his righteousness is credited to us. So there's no condemnation if we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. Maybe you feel like you're not able to be forgiven. Remember, his grace is abounding more and more. He's faithful. It's him who justifies us. When we feel like we're swallowed up, we're tempted to wallow in it. We look at this passage and remember that grace abounds all the more than each and every sin. Where, where we seem to be increasing in sins, where we see sin at every turn, we can take comfort to the free gift. It was not like the sin because the gift followed many transgressions. Sin reigned in death, but now we can reign in life, both in this life, that we can actually, by God's grace, begin to, to, to have reign and rule over even our own sins by His grace, and that one day we'll reign in His grace. And then the third implication is his motivation to worship. Given the abundant provision of God's grace that we've received, we should be all the more amazed at his gift of grace. Because we didn't merit it at all. We were were doomed to begin with just an Adam. And then we, as as Paul has told us, we have added every manner of sin. So our condemnation was just. And yet, he pours out his grace on us. And he offers life to us. Because of this free gift, we've now been made alive. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous. So let's worship in response. Let's think differently, trusting in God, putting aside self-righteousness, legalism, condemnation. Let's, let's act differently. Let's be motivated by God's grace towards other people. And then let's feel differently. Let's, let's worship God because the gift is not like the trespass. And let's be stirred with fresh gratitude and affection. Amen? Well, let's pray, and as I pray, I'll go ahead and have the, the band come up, and, and we'll close in prayer, and then and go from there. Father, thank you for your great grace. And I pray that we be able to see that it's, it's not like the sin of Adam, but your grace is unlimited. Your righteousness is unlimited. And I pray that we would might see that we possess your righteousness, that you've declared us righteous, that you've imputed it to us, and that you've credited your righteousness to us. And I pray that we would understand that you actually give us the ability to reign in life, that your grace might reign in our lives. As we learn to trust more and more on your grace, Lord, may we put to death those things that have to do with the old nature. Lord, would your grace reign in our lives in the process of sanctification as you are making us to be actually who we already have been declared to be. 
Lord, your righteousness reign in life. Will we rely on your grace for all of life? And Lord, will we worship you for the life to come? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.